Hello and welcome to Evol X, the expertise series from Energy Voice Out Loud. I'm Ryan, our reporter. Energy Voice is leading the global energy conversation. And so I'm delighted that in this episode, we're going to be talking about IR35 in a paid partnership with Brooks and Group. I'm here with Matt Fryer, managing director of the firm. So first off, what's been happening in the last four weeks and what are the long lasting impacts on the industry? Well, Ryan, I guess what what hasn't been happening, it's been a bit of turmoil the last three or four weeks. We've had three chancellors now, I think, X number of home secretaries. Currently, we haven't got a, a prime minister in place. So, and in that period, we've had the good work plan and the reversal of a lot of the measures that, that were announced. So it's been a bit of a false start on a repeal to the IR35 rules. They're here to stay. Lots of other tax changes have been brought in that subsequently were pulled. Um, and we've yet to have a, another fiscal statement on at the end of October. So lots of uncertainty at the moment, I guess. And particularly for IR35, I know it's a, a big issue for the oil and gas sector. You do start to wonder whether uncertainty will result in, in a short-term skills gap, commercial pressures. Um, I think that is yet to, to unfold, but no, undoubtedly there will be some knock-on effects. So you just mentioned uh, a potential creation of a skills gap uh, because of the IR35 reforms. What... What are the wider implications for North Sea contractors, but also for North Sea operating firms? Yeah, so I think as a sector, oil and gas, and particularly North Sea, is reliant on contract resource. Um, and that's because the sector is very cyclical, peaks and troughs of activity, and quite often needs to scale up and scale back at relatively short notice. So having a flexible talent pool is pretty critical. I think there's competition for that resource, though. New sectors emerging where there's potential cross-skill of resource, particularly in renewables. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, contractors are worried, mainly concerned around how much money is in my pocket. Um, and how much money is in their pocket is not necessarily always determined by the rate that you're going to pay them. It's determined by the amount of tax that is deducted from that rate. So I think IR35 play, plays a real critical factor in attraction and retention of skilled resource that's needed in periods of demand. And clearly, if you're blanket banning or categorising all contractors being inside IR35, they're probably going to be less likely to want to work for you. And they're going to look towards a competitor or a competitive sector that perhaps is a little more advanced in the thinking around IR35. So I think there's a definite message out there to, to sectors that think there is a skills gap and they need resource and they don't want to pay over the odds for it. And I think that sums up the North Sea oil and gas sector. Then having an effective IR35 strategy in place that supports genuinely self-employed contractors has got to be high up on the agenda, I think. On that uncertainty, uh, obviously the government, like you said, um, we heard they were going to reverse IR35 rulings, uh, which suggests that there they do believe there was something something wrong with the legislation what does it mean for the government now that they've decided to overturn that idea to reverse ir35 legislation yeah they did play their hand to some degree in the good work plan announcement where they announced the repeal of the ir35 rules or, or the repeal of the off payroll rules effectively moving the risk back to the contractor away from the end client. Now, as we stand today, that's been reversed and it still sits with the end client. Now, the, the rationale for the, the repeal 
was twofold, really. And, and this is in writing from the government. Number one is they wanted to minimise the risk that genuinely self-employed workers aren't impacted by the underlying off-payroll rules. So I think there's an admission of guilt, if you like, there, that the current rules aren't fair for contractors. But there was a secondary reason why they put the repeal forward, which was to free up time for businesses so they can put that time to other priorities. So I think there's a twofold admission there. A, it's not fair on contractors, and B, it's onerous, costly, and takes up time for businesses to manage that could perhaps be better spent elsewhere. So to me, that puts forward a clear mandate for change, but the change hasn't happened. So you do wonder whether the case is still open going forward, and we may see some small tweaks, we may see some bigger tweaks, we may even see another repeal at some point in the future. Um, but it's very hard to to, to second-guess exactly what, what's around the corner. Do you know, you, you just mentioned there that it's unfair for uh freelance workers in the energy industry. Just just to recap and clarify, what makes it specifically unfair for them? I think the unfairness derives from the fact that there's no legislative measures with any teeth that allows a, a contractor a freelancer to effectively challenge or put forward their view of their own employment status. So it's been widely reported that some end clients see this as too risky and therefore have blanket ban the use of limited company contractors in their supply chains. O others have said, we think everyone is inside of IR35, therefore you need to pay the pay you earn that comes with it. Um, and the unfairness is, even though there is a, a challenge at stroke appeals process in the legislation, it's up to the client to push back on that. Um, and there's nowhere else for the contractor to go effectively to have an independent review of that position. Um, in an ideal world, HMRC would be the ultimate judge and jury based on all the facts, um, but they're not. It, it, it's all with the the end client, the end users of that contractor's services. So quite clearly, contractors that believe they are outside of IO35 and have been working in that way right up to April 2021, suddenly to be told either you can't work through a PSC anymore or we believe you're inside of IO35 and you're not going to change our mind. I think that leaves a sour taste in the mouth for some contractors. For those contractors, is there anything they can do to sort of, uh, to mitigate the effect of IR35 and maybe make a more watertight claim that they shouldn't fall within this legislation? Yeah, I think we are starting to see, perhaps call it best practice emerge, in that some end hires are now really starting to understand how IR35 works, how to properly assess it, what demonstrates a contract of being outside IR35, what demonstrates it being inside. And you're starting to now see end hires actually use contractor input, contractor view and opinion as part of the process for determining the IR35 status. So I think that's a good move forward. You also are seeing end hires starting to understand a little bit more what they can do to change perhaps contracts, working practices, the way they treat and deal with contractors to support an IR35 status. I think prior to April 21, many businesses that use contractors didn't really fully understand how they worked, in some instances who they were. Um, it wasn't permanent headcount, so HR didn't oversee it. It was effectively part of procurement spend and they're just a third party contractor in the business. Um, I think now HR are starting to take a, a grip of things and understand the importance of getting the best contractors at the best price and, and a progress 
aggressive IR35 strategy that supports contractors is, is part of that toolkit now. Before we go any further, maybe it's worth recapping. What are the current rules regarding our IR35? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because we've, we've been to and fro for, for a few weeks now. So the, the current rules as they stand now, and there's currently nothing out there that indicates they're going to change anytime soon, is that effectively the, the end client and the end client is the business that uses the contractor services is responsible for determining the employment status for tax purposes of that individual contract. Now, point one, the big challenge, or one of the big challenges that remains is identifying who the end client is. And it's particularly relevant in the oil and gas sector where you typically get very long supply chains with numerous consultancy firms, numerous recruitment agencies potentially. So who is that contractor actually providing their services to? And that's one of the big challenges, trying to identify where the risk sits in those long supply chains. But yeah, but effectively, an end client makes the status determination. They then need to produce a status determination statement, an SDS, and pass that to the contractor and to the next party in the supply chain. The challenges at the moment are, number one, identifying contractors in your business where you carry the IR35 risk. That can, in some instances, be more difficult than than it sounds. Secondly, have a process for determining the employment status of those workers. And thirdly, a communication process up and down the supply chain to pass that determination. So so that's how the rules work for clients. And then there is a, a second point in there that the entity that pays the contractor, typically it's a recruitment agency, is responsible for deducting the right amount of tax based on that employment status determination statement. So there's lots of parties in the supply chain have got risk. And for me, it's a strategy up and down that supply chain of everyone working together to make sure that the right outcome is is determined and the right people are told at the right time. What, What hasn't changed for 22 years is the way that you actually determine employment status. That's still based on case law. And it's still based on analysing the written contract and analysing the working practices from a day-to-day perspective. For the individual, for the contractor that may have not been falling under IA35 and now is, how are they being impacted as an individual? Yeah, so this is all about take-home pay. One of the other points of unfairness with the legislation is that it it determines an individual or, or, or a personal service company to be employed for tax purposes, but not employed for employment rights purposes. So... If you are working on a contract that's found to be inside IR35, it means that all of the contract income that is paid out should be subject to pay-as-you-earn, exactly the same as an employee would. So there's employers' national insurance to pay, there's employees' national insurance to pay, there's pay-as-you-earn to pay, there's apprenticeship levy, and this can add up to quite a lot of tax and national insurance, and therefore reducing the take-home pay. If you're outside of IR35, then all the funds are paid gross into your limited company, And you as a director of that company can determine how you then remunerate yourself. And there's tax efficient ways to do that. So the the biggest issue is that reduction in take-home pay, which can be anything up to 20-25% lower for a contractor working inside IR35 than a contractor working outside of IR35. The, The other detriment, if you like, is that despite all that employment tax being paid, you're not afforded any rights to sick pay, holiday pay, all all the basic employment rights that an employee gets aren't provided to a contractor who is deemed to be inside of IR35. So a secondary factor related to that employment issue is that we now have companies 
issuing effectively a certificate to their supply chain saying, I think this individual or this contract is a contract of employment in brackets for tax purposes. There is a underlying risk with this that individuals could use that certificate to say, you think I'm employed, why aren't I being paid, holiday pay, sick pay, etc., etc. So this is perhaps an issue that's not been raised to the surface just yet, but there is a concern that there could be group claims for employment rights for contractors deemed to be inside of IR35. And the reason I flag that is it's another reason for end clients to really think about applying a proper employment status test here and making sure that they are supporting both inside and outside IR35 contracts. So what would one of these employment status uh, checks look like for a firm when they're determining whether or not their contractors fall within IR35 or not? Yeah, there's lots of... Lots of approaches they can take. So HMRC tried to smooth the path by creating the CEST tool, Check Employment Status for Tax tool. And that's a, a tool that's online on the HMRC website. It's free to use um, and you can input answers to various questions and it'll give you an outcome of whether it thinks the contract is inside or outside of IR35. Now that tool is has been widely used by lots of end clients and also it's used by contractors to double check the position as well for them to consider whether they want to challenge it or not. It's not without its faults though. Actually, it's been widely ridiculed in, in the market for not effectively assessing a key area of employment status, which is around mutuality of obligations. It's, it's quite light on that. And the tool itself is quite binary. There are some questions in there that if, if you answer one or two questions in a specific way, you pretty much always come out with the same output. So I think intentions were, were good, but it's dangerous if it's in the wrong hands. And, and the reason I say this is some of the questions are quite nuanced. On first read, it's sometimes difficult to understand exactly what's being asked. And if you answer incorrectly, you could get yourself in, into difficulties because it might spit out the wrong outcome. Um, HMRC have said that they will stand by the output from the CES tool with a, with a massive caveat that as long as the Questions have been answered correctly. So I think I think firms using CES need to really think around who's using it, what training have they got, what understanding do they have of the questions, and has that been double-checked by, by a specialist. There are commercial tools in the market that offer a um, IR35 determination based on, again, answering a series of questions. Some of those ask 15 to 20 questions, some ask over 100 questions. Um, but again, they are all reliant on the user inputting the right answer and understanding exactly what the question is asking. And I think the third bucket of solutions out there is there's IR35 specialist advisory firms. Some of those are law firms, some are accountants, so some are provided by insurance providers. So I think there's a whole range of solutions out there, um, all of which purport to do the same thing, some of which I think come with a health warning, um, some of which don't, some of which are cheap or free, some of which are a bit more expensive. Um, so I think, yeah, there's real thought needed around how how a business is going to assess status and what additional support they need to do that. So if I'm if I'm picking up what you're saying here, right, it seems as though going with an IR35 specialist firm is the most watertight solution from ensuring that you're being categorised within IR35 correctly. However, some firms might not go with that because of the costs incurred compared to using something like Zest. Yes, I think I think that's fair. Um, if I just broaden 
the requirement. So it talks about the requirement from an end client is to make the employment status determination. That there's a second piece to this in that they need in doing that, they need to demonstrate they've taken reasonable care. Um, and this is, in my mind, the key phrase that gives us a view on how HMRC are going to police this. So the, the reason that the rules move from the contractor bearing the risk to the end client bearing the risk is because there's fewer end clients than there are contractors. So HMRC don't need as much resource to police it. Um, but the introduction of the reasonable care test means HMRC have to audit a process, audit the way in which you are managing IO35 and not necessarily get into auditing every single individual contract. So businesses need to think about how they're going to meet that reasonable care threshold. And using a tool with no external support or using an online tool with no real knowledge in the business will get you a employment status determination, but doesn't necessarily tick that reasonable care box. So our view is that that wraparound consultancy service with an IO35 specialist firm that can start to understand your sector and your business and can give you tailored advice around the process that's right for you. Also with a mind on all the requirements around reasonable care, it is the way to manage this. Now that does come at a cost, but if you think of the the cost in terms of tax that could hit you if you get it wrong, or the flip side, the cost in terms of not being able to attract the right talent at the right price if you take a risk-averse approach, that that is probably money well spent. We were speaking about how the the change, uh, you know, how IR thirty five regulation was going to change, and now it hasn't. What was going to change, and why were so many end hirers relieved during that time? Yeah. So what was going to change was the current rules were effectively going to be not ripped up, but just put on the shelf, um, and we would revert back to the pre-April 21 rules, when the contractor had to determine their own status, when the contractor was responsible for any tax if that status was wrong, and where the end client and supply chain had no requirement to be involved in any form of IO35 process and, and were absolved of any IO35 risk. So that's why I think the majority, if not all, users of contractors and the supply chains breathed a collective sigh of relief. Risk has been removed from them. Cost has been removed from them, just the headache of managing IO35 and having reporting on all contracts in the business what wasn't going to be required anymore. So I think that collective sigh of relief again indicates that this is tricky for some businesses to manage. Now, from a contractor perspective, there was an initial, well, pretty much unilateral view of this is great news for us because we we are not going to be dictated to anymore around effectively how much tax we pay. It's in our gift now to, to assess ourselves. Now, I can understand that. The challenge with that, there's a potentially an opportunity for tax avoidance to start being proliferated in supply chains again, which was the reason why HMRC change or well, one of the reasons why HMRC changed the rules. Um, so I think side relief from everyone in the supply chain, but there, there was a word of warning that HMRC will now be coming after you, the contractor. And if you get this wrong, actually it's life-changing amounts of money that could impact you further down the line. So in, in some respects, and this might be a slightly controversial view, my, my thoughts are the, the rules as they are now with the end client being responsible is probably the right way to go. But what we need to do is educate end clients, support end clients to, to manage the rules correctly and fairly. Now, as I said, that's probably a controversial view in the market, but I get comfortable with that 
as a, it's a long-term strategy to make sure that there's a dynamic, flexible workforce in the UK that's being managed correctly. Um, we just need to try and accelerate the prolonged bedding in period for everybody to get comfortable with the risk and, and how to manage it. So you, you think that IR35 is uh, potentially helping contractors because it'll help them avoid potentially being slapped with a massive fine for not paying the right levels of tax. However, going back to you know what we said earlier about Quasi Quartang and Liz Truss almost open openly admitting that something was wrong with IR35 and that sigh of relief that the industry sort of let out when we thought the, the reforms were going to be overturned. Do you think we're on track to having IR35 revoked anyway, even if it is potentially benefiting contractors and companies from in your opinion? I think something's got to change because the last 18 months have proved that, you know, dis- despite commentators in the market and, you know, podcasts like this where we're trying to influence behaviour and change and set best standards of practice, the market's not quite understanding the rules or operating them correctly. And government has acknowledged that, as, as we mentioned earlier. So we may see some tweaks to the current rules. We may see another round of a reviews and how effective they are. There's been a few of those in the past and unfortunately HMRC have never really taken on board the feedback. Um, but but I hope, and, and this is what the lobbying needs to be at the moment, that whoever the new government is, whoever the new PM is and, and senior cabinet members, um, that on their agenda is a kick of the tyres or another review of the current IO35 rules to make sure that they do work effectively. Back to your question, I think what Quasi Kwartang's announcement did tell us is it would be relatively easy for the current rules to be repealed and the new and the old rules to be brought back because they they're still there on the statute book. Um, and if you remember, the contractor is actually still responsible for their own IR35 status if they work for what's deemed to be a small client or if they're working for a wholly offshore client. So that those old rules. Um, chapter eight of the legislation are still there. They just at the moment apply if you're working for a small business. It'd be relatively easy to, to reinstate them. So I, yeah, I, I think there will be some further changes. I think there will probably be tweaks to the current rules. Um, but if we just step back from the specifics of IR35 and go back to, I think it was 2017, Matthew Taylor's good work plan had... I think there was over 100 recommendations in there for government around how we can best support the gig economy in the UK. And there was two things in there that haven't really been addressed that are relevant to IR35. One is effectively putting on the statute books a test for employment status. So moving away from this grey area, opinion-based case law view of employment status to a black and white test that's prescribed in legislation that's easy for everyone to understand, easier to implement, but will have a sharp edge to it. So you're either inside or outside, depending on, on specific status. Um, so that's something that hasn't been looked at that, that might get picked up. Um, and the other big one, and this has been on the table for the last 20 years that I've been involved, involved in the sector, is a line in tax and national insurance between the self-employed and the employed. And, and that would effectively mean that whether you're self-employed or you're employed, you pay the same amount of tax in NI. Therefore, there's no benefit from a tax perspective from working one way or the other. Now, that would involve a structural change to the tax system and it has just been kicked down the, 
the line because it's too hard. You know, I think we just need to reference those two big ticket changes, which might be looked at at some point in, in the near future and will obviously impact the way that IR35 operates, regardless of who carries the risk. So as as we know, Liz Truss uh, just handed in her resignation and we're looking for a new government. And IR35 will be on the billing, as with a lot of energy issues, as they are dominating the, the headlines at the moment. Would that be your advice if you were to uh, to be part of that government, you were to be working on IR35 reforms, would you be saying put these tests in place and reform the national tax brackets? No, I, I'd be saying we need to make the current IR35 rules a bit, bit more understandable, a bit easier for the supply chain to use. I, I think it is right that there is a difference in tax between the employed and the self-employed. And that's just governed by the fact if, if you're a self-employed worker, a freelancer, an interim, a contractor, you are giving up the permanency of employment and all the rights that come with that to be there for the market to use when they need and get rid of when they need. And the flexibility of the UK economy is one of the key measures on that, that drives the productivity of the UK economy. So it's really important that we think about how to protect and nurture the flexibility of the UK economy. And I think aligning tax and national insurance will probably stifle or restrict the flexibility of the UK economy. So at that level, I think it is right that there is a differential in tax take between employed and self-employed workers. I think the way that that is assessed based on case law um, is the right way. We can see in other countries, I know in the US, there's very black and white tests around employment and self-employed. And when those black and white tests were introduced, there was a large reduction in the use of contractors and freelance workers. So I think the UK system is right. I just think that the rules as they stand need to be tweaked around the edges. So I think there needs to be more of a more weight behind a contractor challenge process, effectively some sort of independent arbiter to sit in the middle. And I think there needs to be more clarity around how HMRC are going to enforce and govern the rules. So I'd be advocating a, a kick of the tyres and a refresh and a rethink around the, the current IR35 rules to make them more workable for everybody in, involved. So, yeah, what we should be doing is looking to make it more user-friendly for both the contractor and the firm involved. Because yeah, if, if those involved get it wrong, there are wider implications that should be considered, for example, uh, the Criminal Finances Act and regulation of umbrella companies. Uh, what would be the the impact on a firm if they were to get this wrong and fall within these? So I think if, if a firm assesses a contractor to be outside of IR35 and, the, and they're inside of IR35, then the IR35 rules apply and, and tax lands with the end client if they've failed to take the reasonable care. Um, I think there is a hidden risk here that perhaps hasn't been spoken about as much as it should be, that those end client businesses that think, I've managed the IR35 risk because I've banned PSCs in the supply chain or I've said everyone is inside of IR35, then that drives those contractors to work through pay-as-you-earn models and into the umbrella sector. So the business could think, I'm fine from an IR35 perspective. I've told everyone they need to deduct pay-as-you-earn. Assumption one is that pay-as-you-earn is being deducted. Um, now, if it, if it isn't, technically the risk sits with the recruitment business that pays the contractor. 
unless there's an argument that the end client hasn't taken reasonable care. But outside of the IR35 rules, as you mentioned, Ryan, we've got the Criminal Finances Act, which again, I think that was back in 2017 or 2018 that came in. And that talks about businesses being responsible for preventing the facilitation of tax evasion in their supply chains. So this isn't just an IR35 issue. This is a, a broad tax issue. And where it could hit in labour supply chains is where a contractor should be paid subject to page you earn. But for whatever reason, that's not happening. Um, and one of the trends we did see post the introduction of the IR35 changes 18 months ago is a resurgence in tax avoidance schemes aimed directly at contractors. So these are disguised remuneration schemes, employee loan schemes. I'm sure we've heard about them, them in the past. Um, they are still out there and HMRC are really struggling to, to police them, mainly because they have a facade of being a compliant business. Lots of funds are transferred offshore outside of the jurisdiction of HMRC. Um, so if HMRC come across one of these tax avoidance schemes, that is being provided to a large cohort or, or even potentially small numbers, whether they spend the time on it or not. But if, if effectively, if you have lots of contractors working through a disguised remuneration scheme, HMRC have got the powers to come to you, the end client, and say, what have you done to identify this? What process have you got to prevent the facilitation of this in your supply chain? And if you don't have anything in place, this is a criminal offence with an unlimited fine. So it's actually far more serious than IR35. Um, and, it, and it's a, a broader view around managing tax compliance in supply chains. Um, now, what one interesting response to the repealed repeal, if you like, of, of the off-payroll rules was we, we know of several large PLCs in the UK who said, I know we're not going to have the risk of IR35 from April next year, but from a Criminal Finances Act perspective, we're still going to want to know how contractors are being paid because we want to be able to spot if there's any tax avoidance schemes in our supply chain and we want to direct people away from them. And that was in response to the Criminal Finances Act. Um, so certainly when, when Brooks and Legal are advising clients, we do look at it from an IR35 perspective, make sure that they're dealing with that correctly. But we will then broaden the conversation to effectively a supply chain audit. Who is in your supply chain directing the way that contractors are paid and how are they ultimately being paid? Tr trying to spot examples of people sometimes inadvertently being involved in tax avoidance schemes because that does bring risk back up to the client. So with the IR35 repeal repeal, as you put it, uh, happening, is it time to start looking at umbrella companies themselves and putting regulations in place regarding them? Yes, I think I think so. We we this has been talked about before by government. I think this was a couple of years ago. There was talk about regulation of umbrella companies. They've they've been developing that in in the background, um, but they haven't published any new legislation yet. But I think the market is is crying out for that. Obviously, in response to the I-35 rules, more contractors are working through um, umbrella companies at the moment. That sector has grown quite rapidly. Um, lots of new entrants into that market, and some of whom are probably don't meet the definition of a certainly a compliant umbrella company. Um, and it's moving towards that tax avoidance scheme territory that we, we just talked about. So I think it is high time government got on with regulation of the umbrella sector. The sector has self-regulated for the last 10 years or so, um, but there's only so far that self-regulation can take you. 
Um, I think there's still a need for that in, in, in the market. But I think government, and this isn't just HMRC, this is Bayes and other government departments, could do with getting their arms around that umbrella sector um, and whipping it into shape a bit more. Because um, ultimately, it's starting to bring risks to supply chains that needn't be there. Thank you, Matt, for joining us today. Uh, from today, we, we've discovered that maybe IR35 isn't necessarily a fundamentally bad thing for the industry, but a kick of the tyres is needed for the, the new government. If you want to have your opinions heard on anything we discussed today, get in touch on social media, at Energy Voice News on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn, or send us an email at outlook at energyvoice.com. If you want to be part of the energy conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outlook at energyvoice.com too. You may already know that every week the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. So if you're not already, please do follow Energy Voice Out Loud in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. For Energy Voice Out Loud, I've been Ryan. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, Leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.